You are listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about psychospiritual and psychosocial aspects of end-of-life care. And now, here is your host, Saul. Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I'm Saul Ebema, and, and I have a special guest for you, uh, Chaplain Wes Maldogo. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Saul. Could you give us a little background? Where did you grow up? Yeah, so I grew up um, in Hawaii uh, on a on the island of Oahu. And if any of your viewers are from there, it's in the Waikela area before it became a suburb. And so my earliest memories um, were having this really nice, calm life um, where everyone knows each other. And then in third grade, we, me and my family moved to California and it was completely different. Everything is fast. Yeah. And then that was my first exposure to uh, how different the world can be and arguably some spirituality. Uh, different people value different things. So you ended up becoming a chaplain. Uh, what was the role of faith in your formative years as a child? Oh, gosh. Yeah, that, that's a deep well. But it, it started off with my cousin, who's actually a Jesuit priest. Um, and he was kind of the the golden child of, of the big family, right? But he chose to be a priest, which um, start, which I should say, uh, awestruck some of our, our family. We always thought he was going to be a lawyer or a, you know, doctor. And when he became a priest, um, that, that interested my curiosity, what would convict a man to, to, to go into a life of celibacy, right. And then, you know, live a life of faith. And so he, I've always soundboarded with him and it wasn't until a bad experience with a, a chaplain, um, during my college years. I thought maybe this ministry is worth pursuing, but it was really catapulted with my relationship with my cousin, Phil. So shout outs to you, Philip. So in college, I lost a, a four-year Army ROTC scholarship, um, and I, I went to a, a Christian Bible college. And, you know, I, I think there are a lot of people sympathetic when I lost that scholarship. Um, and, and really what ended up happening was a lot of encouragement, a lot of Bible verses were thrown around. And a lot of maybe interpretation of, of the scriptures were thrown around. But the one person that actually provided a sense of healing and comfort was a, a campus chaplain who did nothing but listen. And, and I realized that right then and there, there there's a separation of, of that type of pastoral ministry, which yeah. I, I ran with, you know. So what was the motivation uh, to, to work in the military as a chaplain? Yeah, I, I think um, uh, without sounding like the, cliche, you know, uh, over-religious chaplain, but I, I was currently going to seminary. I was in the National Guard after I lost my ROTC scholarship, and I just thought I, I would put two and two together, you know, and so I just became something that worked out at the end. It was affirmed through community, and then subsequently, you know, I, I was a younger military chaplain, and I didn't have the, the, the congregational muscles a lot of my peers had. But because of my lack of experience there, I, I decided to flex the muscle God did give me, which was uh, a chance to do clinical stuff. And so I did my residency out at Stanford and then subsequently some, some post-residency work at, at Dignity Health in those California locations. And then now, you know, in Central Oregon. So let us talk about veterans care in end of life. Uh, what yes. are some of the challenges that you've noticed? Yeah, I, I, I think... I think, um, I mean, just, just putting, so if I were to put a trend, like I, 
when I brief a commander in the military, I always brief trends. So, hey, you might want to reconsider this because we're, we're having a lot of, you know, friction in these marriages. So we're going to hold a marriage retreat, right? Or, you know, um, a lot of, you know, privates are overspending and buying 26%, you know, Corvettes, you know, at the dealership. So we're going to have a financial class. If I had to put trends for veterans at end of life care in my very short lived experience, it always relates to, you know, combat related PTSD, which subsequently leads to a type of moral injury a lot of times, MST or military sexual trauma, and then a type of spiritual pain, which I'm still putting a language to, but it often involves a dishonorable event that they can't find closure for, hmm. right? So um, those are the three things that often come up. You could argue the family, how, how, these, how the service has impacted the growth and separation of the family, but the first three are probably the biggest things. And um, the thing about veterans, and, and you probably know this as well, Saul, and a lot of our viewers as well, um, a lot of them aren't great just by stereotype and not talking about their feelings. It's interesting. Our hospice has a, a spiritual assessment where we have three things we use as the common language. So spiritual distress, you know, why is God doing this to me perhaps, or this is all happening and there's manifestations of this. Then there's disharmony or a lack of peace. And sometimes that could, you know, that's, that's its own separate thing. And then a spiritual well-being, how you cope, maybe it's through a strong religious conviction. Maybe it's through, you know, a general community they're close to, but with veterans, I often see that they may not show a lot of spiritual distress, but when it comes to their military, military service, there's a lot of disharmony that they buried down deep inside and it only begins to come out at end of life. What's interesting is that spiritual well-being, it goes both ways with that disharmony. And, and that's what I'm really tackling on more days than not with veterans at end of life. I, that, that was a lot to take in. I, I hope I, I didn't speak too fast for the viewers or anything. Oh, you've done well. With that, we'll take a little break. Again, our guest is Wes Moldogo, and we'll be right back. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. I'm Sole Bem, and we continue our conversation with Wes. Uh, when you spoke about some of the traumas that the veterans go through, um, the most prominent that we hear a lot about is PTSD. And I remember uh, a time I go in a hospice, one of our hospice nurses was visiting a patient. And uh, all of a sudden there was some noise outside his apartment. And he began to tell the nurse, you know, let's stay quiet, we are outnumbered. They might kill us, just, just you know, whispering, stay quiet, stay quiet. It happened that the hospice nurse, he was also a vet. And so he understood what this patient was going through and he, and, you know, continued to provide good care for him in that sense. But that is PTSD. And that is quite challenging to some of our patients in end-of-life care. So could you talk more about that? Absolutely. Um, PTSD, it, it's such a deep well, as you know, uh, uh, especially combat PTSD is, is what that might have sounded like. Yeah. And what's interesting about that is it's it's so uniquely different for every single person, but the commonality, 
commonality, um, so to speak, in terms of spiritual care, if you want to call it that. We'll call it psycho-spiritual because I, I know my social worker and uh, <laughs> MSW friends, uh, they, they, they probably push back a little bit, would be, can you create the space for them to share their story? Um, just generally, when we talk about someone with a traumatizing experience, which I, I take your viewers are very familiar with, can you just create that space? In hospice, there are a lot of things like we honor veterans, obviously, and then there's the there, there are a lot of movements within specific hospices to bring veterans to veterans, like veteran volunteers, maybe, maybe a veteran clinician. And I, I think that's good. And you might find a lot of short-term game in that. And I, I advocate it for itself, but I will personally say subjectively that 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 fizzles out. So you may have the short-term success, but if the veteran isn't able to hold the space because they're not great at talking about their feelings or they're not great at dealing with their trauma, mm. then you, you you may not provide the healing um, that you could um, at that upstream point of the hospice care. And I use upstream specifically just for the hospice care, not not before they were admitted onto the hospice, right? Yeah. So it, it's that. Um, and I, I could throw out a bunch of interventions, things from passing the torch to things that Deborah Grassman, shout outs to her with her soul injury framework that she does. But at the end of the day, if you just can't, if you can't even create a bridge and feel comfortable, I mean, these interventions mean nothing. So, um, I will say generally, um, just like we use comfort medications to relieve pain on hospice, generally for PTSD folks and any type of trauma, um, holding the space works. So here's an example. Um, in Central Oregon, we have a woman named Allison Perry. She's the co-founder of something called the Central Oregon Veterans Ranch. She is so good at holding space that not only has she had a cohort of Vietnam veterans open up to her, she you know, subsequently started this ranch because of her success with that as, as an, um, an LPC, you know, so I, I can't emphasize that enough. It doesn't matter, you know, what context you have, even as a spiritual care generalist, you could do some really good dent work with a veteran with combat PTSD if you just feel comfortable enough sitting in the space. It's basically you allowing that person to be who they are at that very moment. They don't have to hide anything at the deepest etches of their human soul. So um, they, they don't have to... Uh, Underreport or overreport because they're sensing about how comfortable you are in that moment with them. Can you just hold that space? Um, and I, I, I find it uh, on average people have a hard time holding spaces that aren't usually conditioned or not normal to them. So um, obviously, as a, as a veteran, I can hold space with veterans good because I'm mm. a veteran. But um, I, I, I make the argument: it doesn't matter. Hold spacers are good. Hold spacers regardless. Regardless you know? of where they come from, because yeah. really at the heart of it is empathy. At the yeah. heart of it is just um, the person, the patient in this case, can sense how empathetic you are and how you're connecting deeply with them and you're giving them the space to also be vulnerable. Yeah. And in the process, they can speak themselves into healing. And then uh, you spoke about some of the other challenges. Um, Yes. So I mentioned MSTs or military sexual traumas um, in hospice right now, predominantly World War II, Vietnam, right? Uh, I'd say Korean War, Gulf War now, and maybe little trickles of OIF or Operation Iraqi Freedom, mainly cancer folks. But uh, I, I'd say 
even before the, the latter ones, I, I'm, I'm surprised but not surprised. There's quite a few military sexual traumas, you know, World War II, uh, Korean War and Vietnam, mainly male on male. And obviously um, the, the investigation systems in the military weren't as astute as they are now. And so a lot of this stuff has been disenfranchised over time and been buried deep down. And it's not really till end of life, unfortunately, at least in my situations where this comes up, but it kind of goes back to holding space, right? And so here's an example. It's probably more of a negative example. I had a hospice volunteer from another hospice I used to work for. Really great. He's been in combat. The veteran we set him up has been in combat as well. It was just like this great match, we thought. But then this veteran on hospice proceeds to talk about a very negative experience involving a couple of the people he deployed with overseas where he was the victim of a sexual assault, um, a, a really, really aggressive sexual assault. And this veteran volunteer that we set him up with did not know how to hold that space. So what ended up happening was a really big disconnect and it just got awkward, right? And it wasn't his fault, but it, in order to do some of this end of life work, knowing yourself, obviously, you know, goes a long way. And that's a negative example, but I think it's notable. No, but also, I mean, that person could actually be able to hold space, but sometimes there are some experiences that happen, you know, with the patient that reminds you of your own trauma and actually takes you off the rails. Could that be what, it, what happened to that volunteer? It was a good learning experience for him. Yeah. Uh, Correctively or, or rehab-wise, we, we were able to talk about how this is an experience for uh, a lot of service members, um, maybe more so um, in the latter periods, but he was able to really readjust and it was a learning experience for him. So just know, like, even though there's a disconnect, there's always room for, for growth. Yes. Those three examples, uh, I'm, I'm just going to reiterate, combat PTSD, military types of sexual trauma, and then anything that involves a dishonorable type of, of incident for the currently serving veterans and maybe veterans that just got off, I notice, you know, when those things happen and um, there's such a big shaming on it and we have more resources now, but it, it's so fresh that they're unable to deal with it. And I, I get it. Um, some distance is part of coping that if those things are not dealt with, they, they pop at, at end of life. And um, recently I had a person um, in the military, I, I'd say 70% of, of, of their deployment, I was I served with them overseas. Was an investigation, an ongoing investigation, and um, I I took note of just everything he's been going through. He didn't really want to address the deeper parts of this big disharmony. He wanted to address the distress early on, but later on, when I got back from that deployment, which wasn't too long ago, very similar situation of a veteran on hospice with a very similar type of um, it wasn't an investigation, but it should have been, but type of incident. And he felt dishonorable at end of life, right? So what I'm basically saying is upstream care then if, and there's research towards this, by the way, if we were to deal with that there and now before, long before the hospital admission and before the hospice, right? Yeah. I mean, this, this would, this would palliate a lot. And that, that looks, we're trying to figure out what that looks like at end of life, especially for these veterans. It's like, yeah, I served. It wasn't a combat zone. I was in combat, but there's this one particular incident that I just can't talk about. You're probably the one person I probably could right now. And 
like that that's that's the chance for healing right yeah. um upstream for some of these guardsmen and reservists and even active service members they go through their whole career with that black stain or that black cloud and figuring out what spiritual care looks like you know without a judgy you know without anyone judging them that that's a big deal i did want to bring up something else if i may okay um, yeah uh, hospices they all of them i shouldn't say most of them have a we honor veterans and a lot of it involves a, a pinning ceremony, as you know, a presentation of a certificate or plaque, a coin maybe. And I, I want to encourage folks that do that. Maybe it's a chaplain, but it might be someone else. Some hospices have a veteran liaison. Ours is great. Shout outs to Maureen Dooley. But I've often used the We Honor Veterans pinning and presentation, if done the right way, as a spiritual assessment, you know, wow. um, because right then and there, you're kind of putting at forefront that uh, a lot of people are cautious about this right Saul because if it's if it's something they're uncomfortable with you know it, you're, you're really triggering a lot of stuff but at the end of the day if you have an experienced space holder so to speak you'd be able to address that um, maybe in a follow-on visit or right then and there and I can't help but think how powerful that can be if used the right way with the experienced clinician if someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service, providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI Helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264. Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. I'm Saleh Bem, and we continue our conversation with Wes. You know, as you work with veterans, uh, the families are also part of that uh, provision of care. So what are some of the challenges that veteran families go through? No, you're absolutely right, Saul. Um, and so but what's interesting you know, a specific example pops into my mind. So I had a, a veteran on our hospice not too long ago. He's very proud of his service. That's all he talks about, by the way. But when I talked to his spouse, or rather his wife, she has the most decathetic uh, uh, response to it. She, she just doesn't care. And I was able to, to dig in a little more with her about it. And she's come to express that, you know, at certain points throughout her life, she is so resentful towards her spouses or husband's military service because she's sacrificed so much for it. He's gone. This guy is deployed over five times, which is quite frequent, multiple, you know, overseas tours. And, um, you know, when I say vet happy veterans day, I just don't say that to the, the veteran, but rather the family, right? So it's a big thing. And addressing that at end of life, uh, ratioing that how much we want to emphasize this guy's military service as a, as a point of emotional discussion, um, in, in front of the spouse was a big deal. And so as important as it was to the veteran, I also needed to reemphasize to this veteran because his big closure was making sure his wife was okay, right? Throughout this whole process and yeah. to add an anticipatory grief, um, the complex grief. And for her, it was disenfranchised grief that she was going through. I mean, it, it's a lot, right? So yeah. um, the, the stress of families, I, I can't underemphasize that enough. It, it happens. And I wonder, what are some of the best ways to support the, uh, families? No, I, I'm glad you bring that up, Saul, because, and, and this is going to sound like the, the broken record, but 
for that that woman that I spoke specifically about, all I did was I I held space for her to yeah. tell her story. Yeah. Because what what it seemed like, and and forgive me if they if some family member of this family ends up listening to this podcast, was that no one bothered to listen to how frustrating that was besides our hospice team, right? And so at, at the end of the day, what provided the the strong, you know, good outcome for her after you know her husband died was the fact that he died in peace. And then she was able to tell her side of the story when we emphasized his his veteran end of life stuff. And he had his own share of, of PTSD, right? So it, it was kind of a, a joint effect, uh, two different care plans for two different people hmm. at the same time. Yeah. Um, but, but it's hard. The divorce is hard. And a lot of people regret being in the, the military a lot of times. I, I'm convinced if this woman was married today, if, if, if she was a current spouse of a veteran today, or rather currently serving member today, I, I'm pretty sure she might have filed for divorce. Mm. Pretty sure. Is there enough support for, for the families, for the spouses, and for the children? Yeah, I... What's, what's interesting is that I think the military, especially after the Iraq war, we become really oversaturated generally with types of support and services. But no matter how much support you give someone, there's still a breaking point. As you know, um, I can't tell you how many experienced chaplains, more experienced chaplains we have, how many more experienced behavioral health officers we have in the military, and even just savvy veterans. But how much how much stamina do you have for multiple deployments? And then on top of that, have you even gone through a reflection of your own where you think this is worth the squeeze, right? So that, that's mm. the breaking point. I really appreciate everything you're doing. What are your final thoughts? So because this is the hospice chaplaincy podcast, so it's, it's going to be towards hospice, right? But it's really encouraging some hospices because there are hospices that are trying this already to really if they have the capacity and staffing for it, but make some intentional effort to acknowledge the general niche of veterans that that at baseline, obviously, but I, I, I invite them to go a little further. So veterans in the community. So there's the VFW American legions, you know, out there, but even further upstream, and I do mean further upstream to maybe involving, you know, you know, national guard units. That's pretty common in all areas of this country. Right. Um, who historically have, have recruited prior service military folks that are ready with the, the experience uh, and they deploy frequently as well. So having and seeing what care looks like up there, there's something called transitions. I've heard it called bridgeways. It's like maybe you wouldn't qualify for hospice on that um, LCD type of you know guidelines, but you know you're you're kind of trickling out of a palliative care, maybe you're a constant readmit to the hospital and someone wouldn't be surprised if you had like a two-year prognosis, right? And within that general, people have teams that follow that for like that two years, right? And if that were, if that's identified and you have people that follow those patients or clients rather within those two years and when they're veterans, set them up with, you know, that upstream stuff. So maybe it is a VFW, maybe it is some more vet-centric stuff with the VA, because I, I guarantee you that pays off at end of life. You you are probably helping them for healing and then you're helping your team out. So you're doing less work. Yeah. <laughs> so you can go see other patients, right? <laughs> but that'd be my final thoughts. Uh, there are just more ways to work smarter, maybe less harder, 
but it, it's more dignifying to the veterans and then holding space. I can't emphasize that enough. Wes, thank you very much. I really enjoyed our conversation. Good stuff. <laughs> God's peace to you, sir. That was Wes Moldogo, and thank you for listening. This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. This episode was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Julia, Illinois. You can find our podcast everywhere podcasts are available. If you enjoy listening to the show, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com.